All right, open your Bibles, open your digital apps, whatever you got. Uh, this is a long passage, and uh, I'd love for you to <clears throat> become familiar with your Bibles. Uh, you're right. I mean, like, get more senses involved. Get your fingertips and your mind and your eyes involved, too. Become familiar with this thing. You might want to reference some stuff as we go through it. Uh, while you're looking for that, a couple things. One, uh, two things are really heavy on my heart. One is Boo Boo Night coming up on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, will you throw that picture up that I, I, I sent you, Tyler? So this is my core group. Um, yeah, definitely. That, yep. Um, so, okay, so I'm, I'm not going to be at Boo Boo Night, probably. I'm taken. Uh, this guy in the far right is probably off the market, and he probably shouldn't go. Uh, and then this guy on the left and this blondie right here in the middle. Uh, now, those two guys are going to be at Boo Boo Night. Um, uh-huh. I, don't think I, I don't think I asked them if they would be, um, but they're going to be there. Um, and they're, they're, they're amazing. Hey, so check it out. The first, this is a, a bit of an epidemic around the United States in general. Um, it's very strange when guys outnumber girls at like social events. Um, and I don't think a lot of guys say no. I think a lot of guys just don't make their mind up and then play video games or something instead. Um, like the very first couple weeks, we had a bunch of stuff on the pews that were like get to know you cards or something. It was like you fill your name out and if you want to get involved in the, in the sort of life of the ministry in a particular area, we, we would try to um, sort of help make that happen. And I think Robert Luther, you might remember the number, I think it was 50 girls and four guys. Is that right? Like, like 50 and four? Yeah, like we just walked around, just picked up the little flyers that were there and like 50 girls had like filled out a thing like, hey, I'd love to get involved, like four guys. And I was like, yep, that's about right. Uh, in any case, so uh, Daniel and Jonathan have their pickings uh, unless you guys show up to Booba Night. So um, if in four years you're single and playing video games and you smell funny, um, it's your fault. So, uh, all right, second thing. Um, Second thing, uh, (laughs) there's no way to transition here. Okay, in light of refugees and politics, um, that's my transition. I don't know what, I should have started with that, I don't know. Uh, Hey, look, I wanna wanna respond to some of that, um, some of what's going on in our culture. Um, As a pastor in this ministry, I know our whole staff feels this way often. We are aware of what happens in in the world, like we're aware of what's going on in in your lives and in the culture around us. Um, Tuesday nights, like this moment up here, is not often um, our favorite medium for having very volatile conversations that require lots of nuance and want back and forth stuff. We will do some seminars. I hope that you're not just coming here. I hope that you are developing uh, friendships that turn into sort of brother and sisterhood sorts of uh, relationships so that you might actually tease out some of the things you're thinking about and whatever. Um, Every now and again, I'll actually sit in a class um, on campus with some folks that are in this room. And usually I'm pretty frustrated at, um, well, Quite, I'm going to be really honest, uh, on one level, the preparation, the lack of preparation um, from student side, but also um, sort of the, the power that the professors wield sometimes in those environments. Like people I just feel like are shamed and patronized a lot. And it's not in one camp, like there's just the norms that exist in this particular classroom. And if you're not with that norm, you're going to look like an idiot to everybody else. Um, and I don't know how that works like in a math class. I don't go to those. But um, Anyway, maybe there's, maybe there's that too. I don't know. No answer for you there. Um, but, but, but in light of all that stuff, I really want to provide a space. Like, I don't want you to have to just go, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about things in the world, so I'll just Google. Um, that's okay. I mean, that's, that's an okay place to start. But I really want to help you um, 
uh, I don't know, that sounds sort of arrogant. I don't know actually what I'm supposed to do, but, um, but I want this place, this ministry, this community to be a place where we are navigating some of the waters of our culture together. Um, so next week on Wednesday, we'll be hosting a seminar um, on uh, sort of what it means to be citizens and Christians and what do we do with um, our lovely president and refugee stuff and politics and all that kind of stuff. So um, we'll announce that on Facebook or social media stuff so you can find it on there. Anyway, all right, sermon stuff. Um, <laughs> all my transitions are marvelous tonight. Uh, so uh, you guys ever have one of those moments where, uh, where someone's just not picking up the hints you're giving them? Like someone is not picking up the hint, like they're missing all the signs. Like you're trying to give someone nonverbal cues that you need to go. Like you pack your bags, you start walking toward the door, and you say something like, well, this has been really great. Uh, have you ever done that and like somebody doesn't get it? Like I'm packing my bags and they start a new conversation. Like I, I start taking like a step or two towards the door and they just think our social space has moved, you know, uh, or something, I don't know. I say, well, this has really been great. And they respond with, it has been great, hasn't it? You know what I was thinking? You know, I start, I kind of start freaking out when that happens because they're like missing all the signs. Okay, like is that ever, I don't know if that ever happens to you. I'm assuming it does, right? Uh, a couple specifics for me. <laughs> this happened once during a fundraising conversation for the house. Uh, I was calling this guy, asking him to, to donate. He'd, he had actually asked me to call him to ask him to donate, which makes it even better. Uh, and he said, hey, you just tell me if you ever need anything. And I said, well, we really do right now. And, and he said, just let me know how much and when. And I said, well, we really need about $5,000 more in order to make payroll next week. And here's what he said. He goes, okay, well, you let me know. <laughs> that's what he said. I just swear that's what he said. I was like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say to you right now. Um, we went through something like that a couple times, whatever, I didn't know. The, the best example of this probably was my proposal to Anna, my wife, right? Uh, it was this super intense moment, okay, whatever, uh, with like foot washing and wine and leather journals and all this symbolism about marriage. and was like all this stuff and about halfway through this proposal, literally halfway through, Anna says, wait, are you proposing to me right now? <laughs> Face palm, that's what that's about, right? Uh, I said, what the heck did you think I was doing? And she's like, I don't know, it's you. So, uh, and that's the story of our marriage. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm assuming that kind of stuff happens to some of y'all. Like when you're trying to tell someone something through your actions or words, and you're, you're giving them a sign, and they just miss it, right? If that, let me put it this way. If it doesn't happen to you, it's because you're the one missing all the signs. That's, that's, I think that's it. I think that's fair. Um, well, what's going on in this lengthy, lengthy passage today, John chapter 6, I just can't figure out how to divide this thing up. Um, uh, what's going on in this is, is this sort of missing signs. Jesus is giving all sorts of signs, and, and the people he's talking to continue to miss it. Like he's, I don't know, packing bags is probably a terrible metaphor to use, right? He's like, he's packing bags, and they're like, I don't know what you're doing, man. Like, why are you packing bags? You know, they don't, they don't sort of see what's going on, right? John, <coughs> the apostle and friend of Jesus, wrote this gospel account, the gospel of John, in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might believe in him and have life. And, and how do we know that that's why he wrote this? Well, because he said it. So would you put that uh, verse up? from John chapter 20. Um, I wrote this in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you, A, have life in his name. From John 20, 31. Oh, wow. Um, 
All right, so throughout the Gospel of John, it's not that, it's not that funny. Um, and the whole rest of my sermon, I don't have any jokes, so you guys get, you, yeah, t- soak it up uh, last or whatever the thing. Okay, anyway. Throughout the Gospel of John, uh, we frequently encounter Jesus doing something that John calls a sign, or Jesus, in his own words, says sign. He says it multiple times in this account we, that Taylor just read. And what he means is that what's happening here is something which points to something else. And if that sounds somewhat confusing, just think of any sign, right? Like if I see a sign that says bathroom with an arrow pointing over there, I know that the sign is pointing me to the reality of the bathroom. The sign is only as important as the reality it's pointing to. And the point of the sign is not the sign itself. With me? Right, this, of course, is what we mean probably any time we talk about signs. And John points out a number of times that Jesus did something which was a sign. And just what were these signs pointing to? That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And John's hope, of course, is that the reader could grasp that and that they would believe in him and have life. And so already up to this point in our, in our walk through the Gospel of John, Jesus had done many signs. He had uh, turned water into wine. He'd healed a boy. He'd healed a paralyzed man. And today we read of him miraculously feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. All of these were signs pointing to a greater reality that this man was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, calling all people, even us here today, to believe in him and find life. What we're going to do um, is we're going to walk through some of the story together. I, I, it's a long story. I'm not going to read it again. I am going to walk through a lot of it. It's also, it has a pretty unique place in the gospel accounts because it actually records the only miracle that all four gospel writers record, the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually a lot more than five, but this feeding account is recorded in four of the gospels and then the sort of water walking thing is in three. And what that means is I have all sorts of data about this one story. Stuff from the other three gospel accounts that they all shed light and in turn sort of maybe if you can imagine something like a 2D reality into 3D a little bit. So we're going to walk through some of this. And, and my hope is that, is that you don't try to just figure out the point of everything right now. That you're not, don't try to do a bunch of like hyper theology even during this time. I want you to imagine yourself in the midst of the story. I want you to picture it. It's like a 24-hour day. It's the kind of day that puts Jack Bauer to shame. Is that even culturally relevant anymore? I don't know if that is or not. Uh, there's a new one. Totally, it's relevant. Um, so th- it's a 24-hour day, and I want you to imagine sort of the ebbs and flows and the movement of this day with me as we walk through it. Because of all the data, I've got to skip over some stuff. I hope you'll forgive me. You have the Bible, I hope. If you don't, we'll, we'll get one for you. Um, so you can actually read all the stuff I don't talk about. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the story. Um, Father, you, your son said... Um, Without your spirit, the flesh is nothing. Um, Preaching sermons and coming to worship services and singing songs and quiet times and reading the Bible and fasting and tithing and giving to the poor and everything without your spirit is nothing because it all comes to an end. So we ask for your spirit to be here. Um, May you send your spirit to lead me. And you promised, you actually promised, your son did. And on his account, we ask you to hold true to your promise that where two or more are gathered in your name, that you're present with us uniquely and in a special way. And so we trust that you are. But I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of our hearts and our minds would be holy and pleasing to you. 
Please guard us as we walk through this story and make us um, faithful to your son in our thoughts and the words that I say. Thank you for bringing us here today and for recording this stuff that we might know you, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And your son, Father, help us to believe. In his name we pray, amen. Before we picked up today, um, in John chapter 6, and if you go back just a little bit in John chapter 5, Jesus is escaping the political powers and the crowds as people are out to kill him, which is, a, which is a strange pendulum swing to what he's about to experience in this story, right? The other gospel writers tell us that he and the disciples were actually going off to be by themselves for a bit, to go to a desolate place, but the crowds find him, huge crowds. And why are they following him? Because they'd seen him heal and teach and they wanted more of that. Who wouldn't? Some of the disciples, when they see the crowds coming, suggest, why don't we just send them away? Why don't we send the crowds away? After all, wasn't it Jesus' idea that we go get some peace and quiet? It was. Jesus, remember? We're gonna go find a desolate place together. Send them away. But Jesus, having compassion on the crowds, we're told, teaches them about the kingdom and heals many of them until it starts to get late. And I wonder if you're a disciple or I'm a disciple, I wonder if that whole process is actually frustrating. I don't know. So it gets really, really late and Jesus decides that he wants to feed them and it's really pretty incredible. So the stories say that there's 5,000 men and that, that there's reasons for maybe for why, there's speculative reasons as to why just the men are listed. But the estimates are there are about 20,000 people in total gathered around, this huge crowd. And Jesus had them divide up into groups of 50 or 100 and, and taking this little boy's few loaves of barley bread, which is the poor person's grain, and a couple of fish, Jesus gave thanks and said a blessing. And he broke the bread and passed it around. And we're told that everyone ate, and not just that everyone ate, but that everyone ate until they were satisfied, that everyone ate until they were full. They took as much as they wanted. In case you don't know this yet, our God is a God of abundance. He's no skimp. He lavishes us, and his blessings overflow. And so here we find that everyone ate until full, and there were even leftovers, 12 baskets full. And then the crowd after a few awe-inspiring days with Jesus, culminating in this miraculous provision of food, wanted to crown him king. Why? Because they saw in this miracle a sign. That's what John even says. They recognized in what Jesus did some kind of sign that this might be the promised one of God, the Messiah, or what in Greek we would call the Christ. The prophet who would be greater than Moses that God told us about in Deuteronomy. The Messiah. This might be the one. And, th and this prophet, this Messiah, this, this Christ that we're expecting, would he not lead us like a king? Let's crown him king. Just a day or two before, he's escaping because he's about to be killed. And now what does he do when the crowd wants to make him king? He escapes again. He takes off. He actually sends his disciples by boat. He says, disciples, get in the boat. And he sends them off to Capernaum on the other side of the sea while Jesus went to hide himself away to pray. And it's just interesting to me that, that this is where Jesus actually maybe does find his desolate place in the quiet with his father. And the disciples find theirs some three or four miles out 
over the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias as it was later called, well over halfway to their destination. And in their desolation, they were experiencing rough waves and fear. You see, Mark tells us in his account of this story that they didn't understand what in the heck had just happened, that their hearts were hardened, we're told, about what just happened with the bread. Perhaps they were frustrated that they didn't get their alone time with Jesus. Perhaps they were confused by his testing them. We're told in John's account that Jesus actually tested them. Perhaps they didn't like being sent across the sea without Jesus, wondering what he was doing. Imagine what the conversation on the boat would be like. The grumbling on the boat. And then one of them sees Jesus walking on the water in the distance, on the horizon. And at first, they think he's a ghost. Peter then has a pretty famous interaction with Jesus, which we're told about in another gospel account. And when they take Jesus onto the boat, we know that the disciples were filled with fear and gladness, and they worshiped him. And I don't know if that sounds like a strange mixture of feelings and actions to you, fear and gladness and worship, but it sounds about right to me. And then Jesus, this Jesus who does so much, or sorry, this Jesus who does so much with so little, whose compassion is greater than anyone else's, whose presence has more force than the wind and waves, this Jesus steps off the boat on the other side. And you know what happens? Well, the crowds show up again. Literally, much of the same exact crowd shows up. When they saw, they woke up in the morning, uh, coming back presumably for food or for, well, we know actually from what they're about to ask him, to be fed more. And they recognized that the disciples took off in one boat and Jesus didn't take off with them and, and then that he was nowhere to be found. So they figured that he must have somehow gotten on the other side with his friends. And so you know what they do? They actually run around the north side of the sea. This whole group of folks just starts on a pilgrimage around the whole north, probably taking four to five hours to walk around this, this area. And instead of asking him how he got there, when they meet him, they ask him when. It's just sort of a strange question. Not how in the heck did you get here? When did you get here? How'd you beat us here? You know? And I want you to kind of picture the dialogue that ensues because at this point, the narrative stops a little bit and it's just this conversation between the crowds and Jesus. And it might move a little bit because at one point we're, we're told that it starts to take place in a synagogue and we don't know exactly when that happens. But this conversation begins to take place between the crowds and Jesus. And so the crowds say, when the heck did you get here? Jesus says, I know why you're here. You should desire food that never perishes and you missed it. You missed the signs because you want something other than what I'm offering. He doesn't even answer their question, friends, about when he got there. Just like in the case of Nicodemus last week. He goes right for the heart. You missed it. And so the crowd say, well, so what do we do in order to get that food? Right? You want this food? I'm offering other food. And they go, what, what can we do to get that food? Jesus says, believe in him whom God the Father has sent. This is the work. They actually say, and this is probably helpful because maybe some of us in this room ask this question, what is the work that God requires of us? What is the work that God wants us to do? To testify to people, to, to uh, I don't know, like have strong sexual boundaries, to, to only stop at a two-beer limit, to go to church on Sundays. Like, what is it, what's the work that God wants us to do? 
If you ever ask that question, that's in the mouth of the crowds at this point, and Jesus does actually answer this one. It's a good question. Here's the work. Believe in him. Believe in him. First and foremost, believe in Jesus. And if that's frustrating for you to hear, there's reasons why, and you're not alone. The crowds hear this, and they respond, okay, then. Rather than, we'll do it, or something like this, that, okay, then, what sign can you give us that we would believe in you? Prove it. What work do you do? If, 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 if the work that we're supposed to do to receive this eternal bread that you're talking about is to believe in you, put your money where your mouth is, Jesus. And they even start quoting the Old Testament to lend weight to their disbelief. So they would say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Okay, so Jesus literally just made magic bread and they want him to do it again? Two observations. First, isn't this what's in all of our hearts probably? I don't know how many of you have ever asked God for something and then, and then received it. For some of us, maybe that's never happened in a way that we would have wanted. But whenever, not maybe whenever, but so often in my life when that happens, you know what I ask for right afterwards? Do it again. <laughs> Do it again. Uh, that's the first observation. Whenever God does something for us, we just want it again and again. And second, they expected that the Messiah would actually be greater than Moses. Do you know the story of manna, of the manna in the desert? That God provided essentially magic bread on the ground of the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan for 40 years for an entire generation. And so when Jesus, although he did something miraculous, there is a sense in which they could have been like, you did something really great, but Moses did manna forever, like for a whole generation, for all of these people for 40 years, do something greater than Moses because we're waiting for the Messiah, the prophet that's greater than Moses. And Jesus' response is kind of classic to me, classic Jesus. First of all, Moses didn't do anything my father did. <laughs> that's, his, that's his response to them. Because they say, Moses did this. And he goes, no, 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 Moses didn't do anything. My father did. And notice that. My father, he's pressing on something. And second of all, he would say, and, and the tense is really important here. He says, my father gave bread from heaven, but he gives true bread from heaven. He's beginning to pull apart and use the example that they brought up and begin to tease out the difference that he's talking about. It's the very first thing that comes up in their conversation. They're coming for bread and he's offering eternal bread. And right now he's teasing that out. There's something different about what God offered through Moses, what my, Jesus is saying. My father offered, past tense, bread. My father is currently offering eternal bread, true bread now. The intention behind that comment is to make somebody step into that and say, resolve this for me, please, Jesus. And they say, similar to the woman at the well, if you read John chapter 4 with the water, when he says, I have water that you can drink, of which you'll never be thirsty again if you have this. She has a response just like them. When Jesus talks about the bread, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And he says, I am the bread. Give us, give us what you are telling us you want to give us, God. God, I want all these things, and I, I hear your sermons, I read these books, I, 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 my Christian friends tell me that, that you have all this stuff you want to give me, what you want to really give me, and he says, I am here. I, I want to give you me. That's what I want to give you. So many things can be said at this point, not the least of which is a massive gut check. What is it that you really want? And what if what God is primarily offering you is himself? And he will not be cowed 
This is the very first of, of, you might have heard of these, of the classic sort of I am statements of Jesus. This is when he says, I am the bread of life. It's the first one. I'm the true bread the Father is giving, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But you've seen me and you don't believe. And they grumble. And the irony would not have been lost on any Jewish reader. Why? Because the Israelites grumbled during their time with the manna in the wilderness. It's one of the hallmarks of the people of Israel during that time is they're grumbling. And so here they grumble again, even as Jesus is trying to offer them true bread. And they grumble, quite frankly, for reasons I think that are open to all of us, that are understandable to all of us. What does he mean that he came down from heaven? This is a problem that they had. Him just calling himself bread would have been an interesting, maybe philosophical conversation or something. But he says he came down from heaven. You know why that bothers them? Not only because that begins to equate him with God, of which he was trying to be killed for earlier, but because many of them actually grew up around him. Isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? Isn't this the family that just like moved to Capernaum a while back? We, what do you mean he came from heaven? You came from here. We saw, they're, like they're wrestling with that. How can he have come down from heaven? And because they're struggling with this, Jesus is trying to tell them what he's offering them. And because they're struggling with this, he begins to move into very rich, intense metaphor. Stop your grumbling, he says. Whoever believes has eternal life. And you should want more than the bread of, that your fathers ate in the wilderness. For they all died. Obviously, that was not the bread of life because they all died. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the crowds respond, how can this man give us flesh to eat? I mean, that's an intense thing Jesus just said. They know that Jesus cannot possibly be literal. This is very similar to what he did with Nicodemus. Are we supposed to climb into our mother's womb to be born again? Here you go again, Jesus. How can you possibly give us your flesh to eat? What do you mean? And rather than softening his approach, Jesus digs deeper. Unless you. So he was saying, unless anyone. Now he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. He starts talking about himself in the third person. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Flesh, blood. Flesh, blood. Over and over he uses that language. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It is not for no reason that people outside the church thought Christians were cannibals. He said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. If you can imagine yourself in the midst of that conversation, having seen Jesus heal and, and, and provide miraculous bread and food, and you're standing there saying, do it again. And he starts saying something like, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and unless you do, you will not have eternal life. How do you feel? For some of you, how do you feel now? I mean, after just the words flesh and blood being said a lot. Flesh and blood. It's not quite the soft-spoken Jesus who's everyone's best friend, is it? Flesh and blood. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. This is what you have to do if you want eternal life. If that sounds harsh to you, 
You're not alone. Would you, would you, Tyler, would you put up John 6, 60? When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That word hard, it doesn't mean hard to understand, although, although that might also be the case. It specifically means harsh. That's what this word means. This is harsh. It's, it's not even who can understand it. It's who can bear it. Who can listen to this? It's so intense. And still, even after this point, still Jesus doesn't stop pressing. He knows that his disciples now are grumbling about this. And you know what he says to them? As they're saying to themselves, who can, do, who can listen to this? This is so harsh. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. Let me, let, me, let me use a different metaphor. He doesn't say, let me reframe that for you. Let me draw you an image. Now, listen to what he says. He says, you're offended by this? You're offended by this? Then what if you were to see me doing what I'm going to do later? And even the way he asks that question, there's the implication that it's rhetorical. You're offended by this? Then what are you going to do when I, what are you going to do when you see me do what I'm going to do later? As if you, you're going to be more offended by that, probably. And then after telling them this, that, 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 sorry, after telling them that the spirit, that the flesh is no help at all without the spirit, which is probably really frustrating to hear after all this talk about flesh, for then Jesus to throw in this curveball. But by the way, the flesh is of no help without the spirit. Then he says this. Would you put up that last passage there, John 6, 65 through 67? He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And after that sentence, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What do you expect? I mean, you can read it, but what do you expect Jesus does in that moment? If you're trying to sell something and a bunch of people start walking away, maybe at least you'd be like, hey, give me five more minutes or don't go. Um, after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned and walked away and no longer walked with him. Jesus turns to the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? There is grace there buried in the Greek. The grace in that question is that his, his, uh, is that his assumption is that they would say no, but still it's a curious question. Rather than pandering to the crowds, he turns to the few that are left. After, so this is, check this out. After this, we actually find it's even worse, that one of the 12 disciples would betray him, and in the next few paragraphs, we find that his brothers don't believe in him. I mean, this whole thing is an anticlimax. If you're following this narrative, it, pro it probably rips the life out of you. Jesus had just done all these amazing things. No less than 24 hours before, something like 20,000 people were wanting to crown him king. And here, after healing and feeding and walking on water, we have moved from this image of 20,000 to something like 11. <laughs> That's a weird turn for a day. And he doesn't even chase the crowds. He calmly looks to those around him and asks if they really want to stay. Seriously. If you put yourself in the story, or imagine being one of the disciples that's left, Imagine being one of the 11 of the 12, the confusion that you might feel. I wonder if perhaps we're disappointed because his disciples are so few in that moment. 
And we may have already forgotten what Jesus can do with a little. Remember the loaves and the fish? Perhaps it's of some help for us to remember what God can do with so little. For all of us in this room who have so little and wonder how, how God can possibly satisfy the crowds that are inside and out of us. Perhaps it's of some help to remember what he can do with five loaves and two fish or 11 dull and confused men. After all, we're sitting here today telling the story, being drawn by the Father to believe in the Son because of their legacy. If we stopped in that moment, that might seem like some kind of colossal failure, except our story today began with Jesus doing much out of little. And it continues today with him doing much out of little. Perhaps we could be disheartened because at this point it seems like the tide has turned against him, from crowning him king, not even to wanting to kill him, just apathetic, just walking away. And maybe we've forgotten that he's Lord over the tide and the wind and the whole creation. And perhaps it's of some help for us to know that God at times sends us out to sea and meets us in our fear and confusion on the horizon. Perhaps it can be of some help to know that in the midst of storms and uncertainty and frustration, he doesn't seem phased. He doesn't panic. I want, sometimes it's strange. I think we actually want that sometimes. We, we want to see God freak out and it weirds us out when he's calm. But you know what he does in those moments? He calmly introduces himself once more and he climbs into our little boats. But what I'm doing right now, I'm talking about who God is. See, I'm looking at the signs and seeing what they point to about the nature and the character of God. But the crowd that day, they weren't picking up the hints. They were fussing over bread instead of all that God was offering them in Jesus. And I think we do the same. Jesus' compassion led him to feed them. It's not that he, he wants less than food for us. He wants more how often we settle like the crowds that day. There is more than what is going on right in front of us in the scarcity and the provision of our lives, in the storm and the calm, in the death and the life. The Father is calling us to himself, friends, opening our hearts to know things like how much he can make out of little or how he can enter into our storms and bring us safely to land, or how much he loves us and how powerful he is to save us, which will be exemplified in the greatest of signs in his death and resurrection, which we'll come to in a few weeks. Ultimately, that we might believe in him and have eternal life. While it's still today, friends, call upon him and believe in him. Let us not settle for bread, which spoils and leaves us hungry tomorrow when eternal life is offered to us today. Those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have eyes, let them see. If you want to talk about this stuff, there's a lot more going on in this text. I'd love to talk with you in the next couple weeks. You can get a hold of me on social media. I got a bunch of people that work with me on staff. They're awesome. They'd love to meet with you too. I mean, in the back, every Tuesday, there's a, there's a bunch of student leaders and some staff that are willing to pray with you. Let's pray together now.
worship our Lord. Father, would you send your spirit to give us perspective? Each and every person in this room has a whole mess of things going on in their lives, and I am utterly convinced that you are up to stuff. And maybe there is um, nothing that you are up to more than trying to show each and every one of us who you are in Christ. Thank you for how your son presses. Thank you that he does not just say, fine, I'll just give you bread then and move on. Thank you that he forces us to come to grips with our desires and what we really want. And it is my prayer, Father, that every single person in this room would want more than they've ever wanted. And they would find that nothing can satisfy those desires except for you. Do much with a little. Climb into our boats. Help us to see who you are. And even as we worship you now, it is nothing without your spirit. So send your spirit and help us worship you that we might believe in your son, that he's the Christ and the son of God and that we might have eternal life through him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.